one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bunjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Hi, and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by Simon Rinney. Simon's from the Gold Coast. He's a dad of two. He's a social worker and he's also the founder of Mindful Men. So essentially Simon works in men's therapy and he's also a sober guy. So he's on to talk about his journey with alcohol and also his work and just how we crack those nuts of men. Oh, that sounds bad, doesn't it? We don't want to crack them. (laughs) Yes, we do. (laughs) Crack them. (laughs) Crack those nuts. Simon, how are you today? Danny, really excited. As I was saying off air, alcohol and my alcohol story has been something that I've shied away for so long. But since getting sober at 40 last year, I've been really excited to be on this journey and actually being okay with talking about being sober and what it all means. So yeah, really excited to be here and share it for your audience. Oh, that's great. What shied you away from it in the past, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, A lot of the work I do is in supporting cracking open the nuts of guys essentially and saying (laughs) why are you so hard why are you so tough and Mm -hmm. it comes back from those I guess traditional social constructs of masculinity that we need to be tough we need to be strong we need to suck it up all that stuff I think a lot of that comes with alcohol is a thing that guys do and they use that to suppress emotions and to feel well and to be okay and I bought into that like so many guys that I work with, I bought into that. I grew up in the 80s, 90s, 90s in a place called Adelaide. So not from up in here in Queensland. And it was tough. It was a tough environment to, to grow up in. And, and alcohol wasn't far away from any guy's hand after work, on the weekends at parties and all that type of stuff. So I bought into this construct and over my journey, actually, as I'm, as I'm saying this, over my journey, being the guy at the bar, drinking a lot, questioning others, why aren't they drinking, thinking that they're not cool if they're not drinking, all that kind of riffraff. But really, as I said before, now that I'm on the other side of that, actually recognizing that there was probably a lot of unresolved trauma that I was holding onto. My story is one of 30 plus years of mental illness as well. So a lot of that was unprocessed and and struggling with that. And I was using alcohol to just numb everything and feel normal. And I think that's why I've shied away from it. But coming to the realization that I don't need alcohol to feel okay and to be 
to be well, to be a good husband, to be a good father, to be a good friend. I'm now right on that bandwagon and I don't feel any shame anymore. But for so many years there, that shame, yeah, stopped me um, mm. from talking about it. Absolutely. I feel like so many of us men and women feel shame about talking about it, even talking about being sober. I think mm. it's getting better now that it's just more like it's the thing to do now, Simon. Yeah. Right? It's like, yes. you know, you got to be, it's, it's the cool thing to do, literally to be sober. But it's getting better is what I'm saying. The more the conversations we have, like what we're having now, make such a big difference to how other people feel about it. And that's one of the main reasons I do this show, so we can all drop the shame, drop the stigma around it. I'm really interested in this where you talk about using alcohol to block out the mental illness stuff. Just like last week, I was talking to Paul the Sober Plumber, who through his story and his sharing his story on the podcast, talked about how he was... He didn't realize it at the time, but the alcohol was pushing away his anxiety and he didn't realize how much he was using it until later. And sometimes it takes that time away from something to actually look back and go, oh, that's why I was using it. Like I've been able to now reflect back and realize it was social anxiety for me that I was kind of masking, covering up, but I didn't know that at the time. And it took me a little while to realize that. Was that the same for you? Did it take you a little while to realize it? Or did you realize that at the time, hey, I'm using this to mask my stuff that's going on for me? Yeah, it took me about 25 years to realize it. So I started drinking in my teens, like a lot of us do. And at first it was just to have fun and to Mm -hmm. socialize. But what I've since learned since, you know, in my late 30s, early start of my 40s, is all that time that I was drinking, I was slowing an OCD brain. So I live with obsessive compulsive disorder which is mm-hmm. like, it's an anxiety condition and the brain just never stops. It's like a hamster wheel that goes faster and faster and faster. And a lot of OCD is actually introverted. It's inside of us. And so we try to outthink it just much like an anxiety condition as well. We try to outthink it and, and reassure ourselves that we're doing okay. But it gets to a point for me, particularly where it just became so fast, I couldn't keep up with it. And the only way to slow it down was either excessive exercise. So I used to play a lot of sports and footy and, and stuff like that growing up, which helped. But outside of that, alcohol just obliterated it. And it just quietened the mind. I could just relax. I could let the guard down. I could feel safe, even though I was probably doing things that were unsafe at certain times after too many beers. But I didn't realize this until ooh, maybe when I first started to speak up about my mental health. So that was 20 years after first symptom. So I'm talking at from eight to 28 undiagnosed around that 28 years when my wife was about to kick me out of the house and say, look, enough's enough. You're just drinking too much. Your OCD is out. Well, we didn't know it was OCD. Should I say your mental health is out of control. I started to have that kind of that little bit of a light bulb moment going, maybe I am drinking too much, but I held on to it. I said, no, this is just part of me. This is who I am. It, became part of my identity and it wasn't until starting a social work degree in my my late 30s where I could do the, the critical self-reflection about not just me in the world but how the world around me works the community levels our national levels our global levels and all those influences so as I said before social constructs of masculinity this is a new term for me mm. which came to light through study and, and so I'm like okay start unpacking this what is masculinity what is patriarchy what is feminism, all these isms and and theories (laughs) and all this type of stuff to help me understand what does it mean to be a male in Mm. today's society? And so going through that process and starting to reflect on my life, that was where I started to recognize, yep, I've got an issue. But I felt like, as I mentioned, when I reached out to you to come on the show, I felt as a therapist these days, I felt like I was lying to myself. Like mm. I, I sit in, in a therapy room or wherever we do therapy with the guys that I work with and talk to them about addiction. And I talk to them about maybe you need to stop drinking because alcohol is a, is a depressant. But I wasn't doing that at home. I, I would go home and then I would use to, again, quiet the brain, to de-stress, to feel normal, to feel not depressed, even mm. though the next mm. day I was feeling depressed again. Mm. So all these things were interplaying with each other, but it took a long time for me to recognize. And I think social work helped bring that out in me, but also we're seeing a bit of a, sh- a shift in, in our psyche at a, a society level as well around alcohol. 
You know, I heard this just this week that the price of a pint's going up in in pubs by almost a dollar, and I'm like, wow, alcohol is getting so much more expensive these days. I'm glad I'm not drinking because I was drinking a lot of alcohol and it was costing a lot of money. But also, I remember as we as we were talking before, I met up with a guy through another podcast as well. So I'm as a podcaster myself, I talk to podcasters, and we always said, oh, let's catch up and we'll go out for lunch and have a beer. Very Australian thing to do. But we held off actually booking it in and doing that. And I think part of me was, I don't want to go and have a boozy lunch with somebody. I wasn't telling anybody this because I was still drinking at that stage. But inside of me, I'm like, times are changing. I'm not really feeling this. So a couple months later, we did organize this catch up. And it was only very recently. And we both rocked up at this cafe expecting maybe have a beer over lunch. And we both looked at each other kind of like, oh, what do we order? And I said, oh, I'm just going to have a coffee today. He's like, oh, thank God you said that because I was thinking the same. Like I said, yeah, I'm trying not to drink at the moment. I was really worried what he might say. He goes, Simon, I'm doing exactly the same. Oh, and I'm like, awesome. okay, we're starting to see these conversations play out mm. in men's groups, men's circles, men's networks, which just gave me a lot of confidence just to go, you know what? Now's the time. It's the time to embrace this sober life and it's mm. something that I'm really enjoying. So. Thank you for sharing that. And I appreciate your honesty too, to say that I was doing as the therapist, but also doing mm. what I was telling people not to do. And I, I appreciate that honesty. So I want to go back to your OCD because this is really interesting. So I've worked with a few people with OCD and they've used alcohol to quieten the mind. I don't have OCD. Tell me what it's like. <laughs> it's devastating. It, it, I love this question because OCD is so often misunderstood. No one really knows what it's like. And and often you see on the social media, it's almost, it's almost trendy to say, oh, I'm a little bit OCD. And mm. when they reference that, it's usually, oh, they like things nice and neat and tidy. And, and there's an element of that in OCD. But for me to paint the picture, so it starts with an obsessive thought, an intrusive thought that we just can't get rid of. Most of us, most people would just, an intrusive thought would come in the brain in one ear, go out the other ear, and that would be it. But for an OCD brain, it stays stuck in the brain and it goes around and around until you perform what's called a compulsive act or a behavior. So that's the C in OCD. Um, and that could be anything from checking windows, checking doors, counting in your head, ruminating, a whole range of different things. And I'll give you a couple of examples in a sec. And then the, the disorder part of it is that you're doing this for over an hour of your day and it's having a profound impact of your day. So it's not like I'm a little bit OCD. My desk is neat and tidy. It's like I have OCD because I've spent one, two, three hours more for some people doing these compulsive behaviors to alleviate the anxiety that's caused by this obsessive or intrusive thought. And so for me, it started at eight years old. Up until that point, mum used to say I was a pretty happy-go-lucky kid. Nothing would faze me. I'd be laughing, smiling, et cetera. But in the schoolyard, another student who I don't even know who this was, I didn't even, he wasn't a friend or anything. He was just someone passing by. He said to me, Simon, if you stop using your voice for more than a minute, you're going to lose your voice forever. So that created the, an intrusive thought, an obsessive thought that most people would laugh off. The 40-year-old in me now would laugh that off. And I wish I knew about people who take vows of silence, who still keep their voice years later after they start talking again. But I seriously thought that that was going to happen. And so the only way for me to alleviate the anxiety and distress that that caused was to hum to myself. So I would mm -hmm. go like this every minute, mm, 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 checking that my voice was still working. I did this for about a year and a half, two years. And, and did people no, notice, like friends? No. Nah, no one no, heard? No friends, no family, no school teacher, no, not even the kids sitting next to me, at, you know, in the classroom would hear me. It was so quiet. I muted it so much that it was so internalized that nobody knew I was doing this. So that was the start of my OCD journey. Where alcohol kicks in was probably around 13, 14, 15. Mum and dad separated and me and my little brother left and we went with mum and there was this notion back in then you know the 80s 90s of the, there being a man of the house and I put that on myself I said I'm the man of the house now I'm the oldest boy here I've got to protect and I've got to feel protected and so the OCD turned from the humming thing and a few other little quirky things that I still don't understand the meaning behind to full-blown checking windows that were closed, where doors were locked, that 
windows were drawn and so forth because I really had this intrusive thought that someone was going to come into the house, steal our stuff, which we didn't have much stuff. Mum had to get everything secondhand and, mm -hmm. and so forth. They might kidnap us. They might murder us, do all sorts of really damaging things. Mm -hmm. And then to add on to that, I had this fear of the house burning down as well. And so I would go religiously around checking that the iron was off or that there was nothing that could touch a hot iron or the stove was off. We had this really old fridge, like I'm talking 70s fridge that was really thick door and thick seals around the outside, almost like one of those Coke fridges that you used to see. And the, the seal wasn't really working that well, but I thought that if the, the door wasn't closed exactly right, that that would create some sort of motor overload and it would catch on fire. And so I would spend as, you know, as an early teenager, three, four, five hours a night going through in the dark around my house, checking all these things. And it wouldn't just be one check. You'd do the check. You'd go around in a bit of a cir you know, circuit like you might do, you know, as an adult tonight going to bed. And then I'd get to bed and the OCD brain would say, Simon, did you really check that door? Or did you really check that window? Or when you checked that door, it magically came open because you pressed it in a certain way. So that it's unlatched itself this thing had a deadbolt on it. So nothing was going to open that door. But my brain was telling me that this was going to happen. And because that I hadn't checked it properly, all these bad things were going to happen. Or maybe I didn't check that fridge with the seal. I didn't close that properly. And if I don't go check it again, then the house is going to burn down. And then it will be on me that I killed my mum and I killed my brother. That is way too much worry and responsibility oh. for a 13-year-old boy to take yeah. on. It must have been exhausting. Absolutely. So then we get to school. So this is at night time. And I would do this in the dark. And this is before iPhones when you can walk around with a light. And so I'm just basically just doing this in the dark, even going outside, checking gates and, and, and so forth. Did mum know that you were doing this? No, mum was asleep. Yep. So she was asleep and and she's also deaf. So she takes her hearing aids out. She's out for the night. She can't hear, she can't hear anything. So I'm mm. pacing around. My little brother didn't know as well. He was he was dead asleep. Interestingly enough, I wouldn't go into their rooms. I would check every other window and all that type of stuff, but not their windows. And then the day would come and it would change or it would morph into have I got my wallet and my keys and also my school stuff as well. So I'd go to school and I would be constantly, like on the way to school, I'd walk maybe a kilometre from where I was dropped off to where the schoolyard is. I'd have my bag on my back and I'd pull it off and I'd check the front pocket, is my wallet and keys in there? Then I'd put it back on. Then my brain would say, did you check that? I've got to check it again, put it back on. And then my brain would say, in the process of rechecking, this fell out. Your wallet fell out or your keys fell out. Oh God. And the reason I was checking those things was because if I dropped my wallet, this magical person that I had evolved in my head would know where I live. They'd have my address because I might have a I might have a card on there that's got my address on it, like my learner's license when I got my learners or my P's, my license when I got an adult. Or they also, if they had my keys, they'd have a means to get into the house, which means all the checking in the world wouldn't prevent them coming in and doing what they've got to do in my mind and oh, so oh. when I found alcohol in my teens like it just took all those worries away you must have loved that like no wonder <laughs> like it, it, it was it was a drug and it and I I just I did I loved it it was but so freeing it makes sense I have to ask questions here at any point like did you talk to anyone about it were you ever thinking this is not right I felt like it was not right, but I never knew how to talk about it. So mental health discussions weren't a thing when where I grew up and when I grew up. And I didn't have a positive role model to look up to who was talking about these types of things. In fact, I grew up in a in a household that was very alpha male. It was very masculine. We all played football. We all emulated these strong, I guess, superheroes. Like we'd watch Die Hard, Rambo, The Terminator. These are all people on TV that we'd watch and and I bought into like, okay, I've just got to suck it up. And, and you know, we'd hear the word suck it up or don't be a girl, don't be a wuss, don't be gay, you know, whether that's at home, whether that's in the schoolyard, whether it's on the footy field, all these types of things. So I just, I was too afraid to to talk about it. 
and I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't have these words. And it took really? 20 years to finally talk about it and start discovering what all this stuff going in my head was. was. I imagine you must have been a pretty sensitive kid to have that amount of worry on your shoulders and to think, oh, this is all on me. You must have been a pretty sensitive kid as well, I imagine. I wore the mask very well. So I was, I bought into that I'm an alpha male as well. I was the jock. I was the the sports kid at school. Nothing mm. seemed to fade me, but internally I was a complete shell of a person. And that's been something that not until my late 30s that I've really started connecting in with that vulnerable person when I burned out in 2020. But I've started to go, you know what? This mask that I'm wearing doesn't serve me. It's hiding this true, authentic self because I am a hugely sensitive person. But for so long, I showed the world that I was tough and strong and nothing would faze me. But I had this double, it was like a double life. On the outside, nothing was mm. was wrong. But on the inside, it was absolute chaos. Wow, that's just so full on. Okay, so you discovered alcohol. It starts to quieten the mind down. I can't even imagine <laughs> What must have happened? How much you must have ended up drinking? Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it just, I was reflecting on this the other day. It coincided with American Pie, the movies coming out in when I was in high school. And so I looked at the big house parties that they had, Stifler and all that, and that crew. And, and I wanted to be that as well. I wanted to experience that. It looked so much fun. Like I had become so, so I guess, introverted internally extroverted externally it was, it's weird how that all played out but I just wanted to be at keggers all the time and so when friends would have a party I was like yeah I want to be there and when I go to this party we've just got to make sure we don't run out of alcohol because I don't want it to end I just want this thing to keep going and going and going and so one carton of beer I'll be always like is that enough should we get more like what's going on and so it it initially started off as just socializing and living out this American pie thing in my head, but it became a reliant thing as well. I needed to go out and, and experience that. And initially it was only once a month or, or, or so on, or once a fortnight, I'd leave home and say, mum's staying at a mate's house and she wouldn't really ask questions or anything like that. But we were getting right on the gas and, and just almost writing ourselves off. That continued through my 20s into my early 30s and then became just a, a homebody husband and father and then it was just me just doing it by myself and so yeah it's, it's evolved over time but always suppressing the mind and, and the brain and just trying to slow it all down yeah no wonder okay what came first so when did you start to address the OCD <laughs> that, that took a long time so mm. Even though I went to the the GP and the first psychologist I saw was 2012 and I got these diagnoses. So Simon, you've got depression, Simon, you've got anxiety, you drink way too much. So you need to slow down, but also you've got this thing called OCD. And Sorry, like, before you go on, I have to ask what yeah. got you to that point where you reached out to the doc must got pretty bad, I imagine. Yeah. So the lead up to 28. The two years prior, my wife had been saying, Some of you're drinking too much. Your mental health is out of control. And it was coming up in the workplace, actually. So what would happen was a Friday night at drinks, we'd all go, people would leave work and go to, to, to drinks. I would write myself off, absolutely write myself off, be the life of the party, be that stiffler version that I'd still hang on to in my head, even in, you know, in my late 20s. And the next few days, what would happen is I would ruminate and ruminate and ruminate about all the things that happened at the party, trying to reassure myself that I hadn't done anything or said anything that would get me into trouble back at work the next week. I didn't realize this is an OCD thing. I thought this was just a, me just being overly cautious or something like that. What I've since learned with OCD, and I'm fast forwarding, and I'm going, I'll go back in a second, is there's an element of OCD that is pure OCD. So it's pure O. So you don't necessarily perform a big outlandish compulsive behavior. The behavior is actually just the thinking. So it's just the rumination. And I would ruminate so much, I'd get so worked up that I might vomit, have diarrhea or, or whatever, because of the anxiety was so huge. But also I would lose track of what really happened on the night 
and the night would actually go, did that happen or did this happen? I'm not really sure because I've thought about it so much that I've forgotten what really happened. And so that would happen more and more and more. And my wife is picking up on that as well. She goes, you've either got to stop going to these things or stop drinking or you've got to go get help. And probably all of the above. But for two years, I, I refused. I said, no, if, if there's an issue, maybe you need to go speak to someone. I'm okay. I'll just stop drinking for a couple of days and I'll go for a few runs around a block. I'll be all right. Didn't happen. And it got to a point where my wife said, you've got to get out. You've either got to get help or you've got to get out because we can't continue doing this on loop. It was like a loop. Again, OCD, everything's on a loop. And so at 28, finally found the courage to, to go and see that GP. I guess on a side note there, one of the also the other things stopping me was this shame around medication. So it wasn't a shame about mental health. It was shame about being put onto medication because I saw my mum, for example, who would be having pills every day for this, that, and something else. And I just like, I don't want to live like that. What I've since come to understand is that I need medication <laughs> just to be kind of level and, and manage the highs and the lows and so forth. But then when I went to the, the GP and the, the psychologist, I expected a magic wand response. So I expected them to go in and say, I've got a mental health issue. You heal me and I only want to do this in one or two sessions. Didn't happen. And so for the next 11 years, went on a bit of a journey from psychologists, psychiatrists, counsellors, social workers, life gurus, you name it. I've tried it, trying to find what works. But it wasn't until 2020. So everyone remembers 2020 for the COVID situation. But I guess managing my mental health, I was studying part-time as a master's degree I was working full-time in a high-pressure environment and I capitulated and I burnt out. And it wasn't until I burnt out and did recovery for that that I recognized that it's not so much the depression, it's not so much the anxiety that I need to treat, it's the OCD. I actually need to treat this. And over my journey, not one therapist has wanted to target it. They've said I've got OCD, but they've never wanted to treat the OCD. And it just Why so is that, do you think? I don't think they knew how to. And, and and I think the more I go into OCD and learn about it myself, there's not many practitioners around that understand how to treat OCD or are interested in OCD because maybe they think it's something that's completely different to what, you know, what I've just explained as well. And highlighting that note as well is that my version of OCD, there's so many other types of OCD as well. It's not just around safety and security. There's contamination ones where you're constantly washing your hands because you're worried about germs. And a lot of people have heard that one. My cousin had that and he actually is no longer with us, but he started, he got a job at McDonald's when mm. he was like 16. And then they did the hygiene part of their training and something just clicked in him and he became obsessive like about germs to the point yeah. where he was completely isolating and like scrubbing his hands like a surgeon. Yeah. And yeah, he got very sick, very sick, very quickly. Yes, I've heard of stories where people lock themselves in rooms for years for that very reason. Like there was a, a one that I saw on, on social media. It was She was a registered nurse, so someone with a medical background who developed contamination OCD and spent four, three, four years in her room worried about contamination from the outside world. So there's different types. There's ones that are religiously themed. There's ones around pedophilia. There's ones around harm OCD. There's a whole range of different types of OCD. And, and one of the, the, I guess, I don't like the word crippling, but one of the crippling elements of OCD is that it is so intense and it is so full on. But what also is so stigmatizing at the same time, because if you we share what's really going on in our heads, it raises a lot of eyebrows in the in the community, but it's not like, for example, I'm going to talk about harm OCD. So you might pick up a knife, get this intrusive thought that you're going to accidentally stab someone. So then you start avoiding knives or you start doing weird things with knives, like locking them in cupboards or whatever, because you don't trust yourself with it. People with OCD don't necessarily want to do these things. It's just the way that the brain tricks them and tells them that they, they want to do it. And so it can be really stigmatizing and, and crippling to a degree because they don't know how to share this stuff. I've only started sharing mine in the last couple of years, these stories around OCD, because I just, A, I didn't know how to talk about it, but B, some of the stuff I think about is just fucked up. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best way I can say it. Uh -huh. It's fascinating though. I'm just sitting here going, I've got a zillion questions, but 
wow, I wonder how many people listening to this just feeling like a sigh of, oh, God, someone gets it or this is me or. Yeah. Yeah, wow. I can see how alcohol is OCD's best friend and also worst enemy because that, like you say, the ruminating the next day because I don't have OCD, but I would ruminate on things that had happened the night before or at parties. I can't imagine what that would be like if it's stuck there in a loop and you just can't stop. Yeah. I mean, it's bad enough anyway. Absolutely. And so, oh, that that alcohol came along for that ride trying to to manage it. And even though therapists would tell me, you got to get off the alcohol, you got to get off the alcohol. My wife would, I just, it was my comfort blanket. It was my superhero cape that would let me to think and feel normally, whatever normal was. But coming back to your original question, it was around burnout and and. I, I started to question my life and going, what am I doing? Like most people did in COVID, what am I doing with my life? And I'm like, you know what? Nobody's talking about OCD. It's obviously an issue. It just happens to coincide with me taking my mask off for the first time and starting my own Instagram page to share my story. And I discovered an OCD community, which I never knew existed. And this is another thing with OCD is called a silent condition. Because we're, because of the shame and stigma associated with it, and there's not much community awareness around it, it takes on average from someone who, from their first symptom to first treatment, about 13 to 15 years. For me, it was around 25, 27, 28 years for that period because I just there's no practitioners around. And but by engaging with this community, I discovered this thing called exposure response prevention, which is the gold standard for OCD treatment. Found a provider here on the coast where I live and got in and started to put the pieces together going okay this is how my brain works i'm not an evil person there's actually ways or strategies that we can deal with this one of those strategies being no alcohol but there's other strategies there's other mindfulness based strategies that we can do and for the first time i decided that i didn't need the magic wand response i needed to actually do the homework so homework on my mental health but also start thinking about, okay, is alcohol going to be part of this new version of me? And it took a few more years later to finally come to that realization that no alcohol needed to take a a step back. And I actually thank my kids for that because they're the ones who really pointed it out for me. And they're only little, they're only four and seven. And I'm doing this for them, I think as much as I'm doing it for myself, as much as I'm doing it for my wife, I'm really doing it for my, for my little kids. Mm, geez, well, it's pretty powerful stuff. I have a question. Would OCD be an adaption, perhaps because a lot of mental illness diagnoses are just adaptions to avoid feeling emotional pain? Do you feel like that's also potentially the case with OCD, that it's an adaption the mind creates so that we don't have to actually sit in the body and feel emotions that are there? Yeah, it's definitely one where you're actively trying to suppress it all. You're trying Mm. to get through that intrusive thought as fast as possible with the compulsive behavior. But what happens is you get stuck on the loop unless you can work out strategies to not do the behaviors. Because what you really want to do is avoid the behaviors, not avoid the thoughts, sit with the thoughts, sit with the emotions, but avoid checking the house door 500 Uh, times and stuff like that. That's where it reinforces the obsessive thought. Say, for example, could you, even though you'd had that, humming thing for example so there's some slight hiccup going on there where you've started to obsess over that but could there have been a link between dad leaving and feeling that it's a very deep question you don't have to answer this of course a very deep emotional wound there that might have been created from dad leaving and this big responsibility you had to take on so rather than feel the emotion of what was happening for you with dad leaving that you created as something like your mind to get really busy using intrusive thoughts so you didn't have to feel the feelings. Does that make sense? Yeah, potentially, like a trauma response. So, yeah, so I guess it it would be most mental health conditions derive from trauma, and that's why we talk about trauma and therapy. Mm. But often, like, and trauma, even saying the word trauma, I never thought I had a trauma story. But when I pieced together all these things that did happen, I can see there there's trauma. And I think I I associate the word trauma with something really big happening, like a massive car accident or you're falling out of a plane or something. But it can be something as small as someone not validating your thoughts or feelings. I remember crying once and being told, don't cry, you're a wuss. Like that can be, that can evoke a trauma response. All these little things I think added up for me 
in that environment, in that time, in that age where we didn't talk about things, where guys were actually taught, suck it up. This is another trauma, I guess, evolving trauma and and or not even evolving trauma, but suppressing all these these thoughts, feelings, emotions as well in the way that we were taught to be boys and men. And so, yeah, definitely, I think potentially there was. I don't mm-hmm. know what happened before eight because we hadn't actually separated. Mum and dad hadn't, hadn't separated before then. So they were still together when that happened. It wasn't until a couple of years later. But I think over the years since then, the decades, and I can't believe I'm saying decades, so many things have happened that I've held on to. And I think in, in a way I've used OCD to be safe and to feel safe, even though it's made me feel the total opposite. It's been a comfort blanket just like the alcohol was as well. It's interesting, isn't it, how the brain does that, how it just creates this sort of adaption so that we can yeah. feel safe, like you say, even though it doesn't make us feel safe long-term, same yeah. as alcohol. It's fascinating stuff, isn't it? It's really, it is. really fascinating stuff. The decision to quit alcohol, did it help alleviate what was going on? I mean, obviously you've adopted mindfulness strategies and things like that. How much do you feel like the removing of alcohol helped those symptoms of the OCD? Oh, yeah, like exponentially. So a lot of it is not just about doing one thing and everything will be fixed. It's more of a holistic approach. And so a lot of it's mindset, trying to evolve my mindset from a deficit one or being the victim to being one of who someone who's thriving in life. So being really positively minded as well. Much easier when you haven't been on the grog. Because you're not sitting there on Saturday morning or Sunday morning wondering, oh, I wish I didn't drink that much. And so clear a mindset, lift the brain fog and, and sit with those emotions, feel them as they come up as well. I do a lot of outside work as well, being outside as much as possible. Surfing has been an, an amazing way to continue that as well and replace what I use with alcohol to slow my mind to just being on the water and slowing my mind there because I'm only focused on the next wave as opposed to all of life's challenges as well. But also, I guess, critical self-reflection as a social worker, looking at how I'm showing up for myself, for my wife, for my kids, for my friends, for my clients as a therapist as well. So doing a lot of that deeper inside work, which has been useful to incorporate breath work or meditation or gratitude practices as well. So it's a range of different things. Alcohol has certainly made it more of a clear mind to be able to do that with greater purpose as well. Those practices, I talk about those a lot on the podcast, the gratitude, the mindset, breathwork, meditation. How much of an impact do you feel like they've had on your whole life? Yeah, mindset is is definitely one. I still have trauma responses to certain things in in my mindset. And when I'm easily triggered, which is is something that I'm quite mindful of as a, particularly as a parent. So (laughs) kids bring out the the best and the worst of me. So being really mindful of how I'm responding to maybe them, you know, yelling or throwing things around and and doing that type of stuff. But also, I guess, in therapy as well, as a therapist, listening to these traumatic stories that other guys bring up and being mindful about my responses to those. Am I facilitating their growth or am I talking them down or dismissing what they're saying as well? So mindset is huge in in all you know, aspects of my life and are really important for me just to be constantly filling my mind with good things. So for example, your podcast, I love to walk around and listen to your this podcast and, and I recommend it to anybody, other podcasts. I love podcasts because you can do it on the run and, and fill yourself with good stuff. I've stopped watching things like the news. I've started hanging around more guys that are more like me. So they're more open to these deep conversations they're they're not drinking we're actually catching up for coffee and cake as opposed to going to the pub so we're evolving the mindset even around friendship groups and social circles and, and what that looks like in 2024 and beyond and then also trying to be that role model for my kids as well and showing them that dad can have a positive mindset even though he's had all these challenges and we can evolve this notion of what it means to be a boy and that's particularly for my son who's you know seven this year really want him to see that it's okay for dad to be vulnerable and to talk about things and but be positive at the same time come out of it with a positive shining light as well so that's been huge is trying to maintain that and just keep drawing in good quality stuff to fill my mind with good as opposed to dwelling on all the negative stuff that particularly OCD would bring in if I'm not actively working on myself. Mm. Did you ever have imagined yourself as being the jock that type of guy to the guy fast forward that's hanging out with other dudes having coffee and cake and talking about their feelings 
it's certainly an evolution. I never thought I'd be in this space. I always thought that I would be that jock forever. And and one of the catalysts for me quitting alcohol at 40 was on my 40th, I I thought oh, I'd get all these amazing gifts. This is a big, a big uh, a moment in my life where I get all these amazing gifts. And all I got was different versions of craft beer. And I and I and I broke down at the end of the night and I'd had a few too many drinks as well. I said to my wife, what why is this? This is such bullshit. Why am I getting all this beer for my 40th? And she said, Simon, that's because that's the identity that people know you for. They know you love beer. You've got a there's a, a cupboard here with all these different types of beer glasses and all this type of stuff. I know you love to go down the pub and drink. And 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 I'm like, I don't want that anymore. I don't, I I've maybe been thinking about it for a while, but this is the realization I need and extended back a few more months as well when we'd go to the pub and and my wife would be driving home and my kids would be like, why isn't daddy driving? He's the one who always drives. And we'd have to say, oh, because daddy's had a few drinks and we don't want to drink and drive. And, and every time we had those conversations with my little kids, I just felt empty. I just felt like this sucks. Why am I having this conversation with my four-year-old and my seven-year-old? Like we should be talking about something else that's more fun. And, and, and these little things just like really put a spotlight on my alcohol use and, and I wanted to be a different person. And so out came this more vulnerable or authentic or just Aussie guy that is an Aussie guy but with just without the alcohol and I've been really enjoying it. In fact, this is a bit weird. I'm going to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. For most of my life on my chest, I would have like these little red dots, these spots and, and they would, and every time I'd get a massage, people were like, Oh, you got some sort of disease or something. I'm like, no, they've, I just, it's just a heat rash. It's just a heat rash. Yesterday I was with my wife and I had my t-shirt off and she said, Simon, have you looked at your chest lately? And I said, no, completely clear. First time since mm. in 25 years that I have looked down on my chest and just seeing normal skin color. And the only thing I can put it down to was not drinking alcohol. Mm. Or yeah. perhaps the nervous system as well is just calming down too. It's not in that yeah. hyper, hyper aroused state. Also yeah. from the mindfulness practices and other things that you've been doing. Absolutely. Always talking about your emotions. Yeah. 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 It's amazing, isn't it? What's it like? To be a guy, be super honest here because there's lots of tradie type blokes that listen to this podcast um, and there's a few that I'm thinking of at the minute. I can imagine their bums going all tight talking about <laughs> meeting at home and coffee and cake. <laughs> and sorry, women, I'm not being sexist. Don't come at me. But what is it like to be a guy, to sit and talk about your feelings and to just be honest and vulnerable? Is that liberating? Is it scary? It's liberating. It's freeing. I always use the word freeing. It's so nice to go past all the superficial bullshit. Like I've been that guy that went to the pub to to vent and to talk about, you know, what's going on at work, what's going at home, what's happening with the footy team, that type of stuff. And it just becomes boring. I always wanted more. I felt like I can give more, I could do more. And so to be able to go deeper and share things, even if it's just like, oh, we're not drinking and just celebrating that and encouraging each other along it is so liberating. It's 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 big for me at the moment because for so long I've also struggled struggled with loneliness, and those superficial conversations with guys that you know we were big friends, but we wouldn't see each other outside the pub. Felt good in the moment, but it never felt like I was really connected in with other guys. And and we've moved around in different you know, states and territories over the years, and we just landed where we are now. I always just felt lonely. And, and I felt maybe there was friendship in alcohol, like in the bottom of a beer glass. But having these different relationships that are more intentional, that they're more focused and they're more nurturing, I don't feel that loneliness as much as I used to. In fact, I want to do more of that. And so, you know, we, we talked about surfing. We created a, it's called the the Blokes Boards and Brews Crew. And we catch up on a Wednesday morning, go for a surf, have a coffee and a chat. You know, I got a smoothie this morning. So it was very different to the, what we used to do and just getting on the gas but it felt amazing and I have so much more energy around that. I just want to do that more. So for the guys that are used to going just to the pub and just burying it in, in the bottom of a beer bottle or, or glass or whatever, there's so much more to it than life. And as guys, we don't need to hold on to these traditional ways of what it meant to be a boy and a man. We can actually mm. move forward and, and pave a way for our sons and our daughters and, and mm. other men as well. Men, we, we're a bit like sheep. We like to 
follow the leader. And I think there's guys doing this. So just if you can't do it yourself, maybe just follow somebody else until you find that courage to do it yourself. Mm, 100%. I'm thinking, you know, this is men and women. And I think a lot of the time they feel like because of their early on associations with alcohol of fitting in and having confidence, that fast forward, even when we're in 40s and 50s, 30s, really whatever, whatever the decade, but they feel that perhaps sometimes the only way they can connect is with the alcohol that it takes out the inhibitions to be able to, to go a bit deeper and have the conversations. But I often wonder too, I wonder, and they, and they feel that, oh, these are my mates. These are the people that I, that truly know me. I wonder what it'd be like if those guys that you've been drinking with for years or, or women, what would it be like to be in a room with those people for a few days without any alcohol? Mm. And I wonder if the connection would eventually, like it would feel very awkward at first, I'm sure, because they're so used to drinking with each other. But then I wonder if one was to start talking and opening up, I wonder just what would happen, like if the connection would become even deeper. Mm. And it's a, something to think about or just to challenge yourselves, like for people listening who are in that real group with people that just drink so much, you know, I wonder what that would be like for that connection. You may find that either, no, there's no fucking connection with these people whatsoever. We're just sat there fucking all, you know, scared. Or perhaps there's other people out there that you could feel truly connected to because it's not until you develop friendships away from alcohol, I think this is, and I'm not being judgy, but for myself, true connection with people didn't happen until I got the alcohol out of the equation, even though I thought it was the only way I could connect with people. It's yeah. fascinating, isn't it? Absolutely. We'd have a like a function, even like a, a kid's birthday, and I'd be like to my wife, is alcohol going to be there? Are we allowed to drink? She's like, it's a fucking five-year-old's birthday. What do you want to drink for? I'm like, because it's, it's social. I think I need to drink to be social and all that. But once you get over that and you, you learn to socialize in other ways, I mean, you can still, maybe it's a non-alcoholic beer. And this is a conversation that a lot of guys actually shy away from as well is the stigma associated with a no-alcoholic beer. I was like, oh, if you're going to drink a beer, you might as well drink a beer. I'm like, well... I was that guy as well. I'm like, I don't want to drink a non-alcoholic beer because it won't do anything for me. It won't get me drunk. Mm. Now I, I have a non-alcoholic beer and I still have the motion. I still feel included as part of the group, but I can also drive home. I can also wake up tomorrow and not be hungover or whatever. That's freeing in itself to have more control mm. over your mind and body by just choosing a different alternative to a heavy beer or even a mid-strength beer as well. Mm, it's amazing, isn't it? that you can do all the same things and still feel really good about yourself at the end of it. Yeah. 100%. Have you read Robert Mills's book? It's called Putting on a Show. I have I think... got it behind me. I actually had Rob Mills on my podcast as well, sharing uh, his gonna... insights. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating insights about this whole thing, this whole conversation around mates and manhood and, and drinking. Yeah, mm. it's pretty fascinating stuff. So how is the OCD for you now? It's still there. It's it's not something that I don't think will ever go away. But these days I have more strategies in place, a bit more connected with myself and 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 knowing what I need to do to to minimize it as much as possible. But it's still there. It's something that I just work on on a, on a day to day. Nowhere near as bad as those three, four, five hours a night and doing all that type of stuff. I'm still doing, still walk around in the in the nighttime doing stuff. But it is much more manageable. Yeah. Mm. What and so taking the alcohol out obviously helped that a great deal. And then, what kind of mindfulness practices do you implement to help you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love the five senses work that I, that I do. So I like to get out and go for walks or be outside in nature and really tune into my sight, sound, smell. Mm -hmm. If I'm having coffee, it's the taste and the touch and all that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I get out as much as possible and try to just ground myself as wherever I am which I find is really useful as a parent because often my kids and my wife would often say that, Simon, the kids are yelling at you, but you're not home. Like you're just standing there nodding at them or, or, or shaking your head. But so being grounded as much as possible is really important to me, but also values-based work. So I do values-based work and really tuning into my personal core values for things like why do I want to give up alcohol? You know, wellness is one of my values. So really ticking off that every day and tuning into those values to really know who I am as a person, as a guy in 2024, as a small business owner, I bring it into my business. Like what's the values of the business? How can I serve guys the best I can? How can I be the best husband as well? So bringing values into that. So a lot of values-based work, a lot of grounding. Every now and then I'll go and do breath work because I find it just gives me that extra 
bit of uh, mojo, but mm -hmm. I'm also a therapist in therapy. So I'll, if I need to, I don't hesitate to go and see my therapist and mm. talk through whatever's coming up at a particular point in time. Yeah, I love that. Therapist in therapy. Me too. It's uh, <laughs> it's so important. It is. Yeah. yeah, it's important, I think, for our integrity and just for our own mental health. And there's no shame in that either. I think it's... no. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So if you could go back in time and talk to 13 year old Simon, what would you say to him? I'd go back further to my eight year old self. And, and I was going to say that I couldn't figure which one out, but yeah. No, okay. I would go to my eight year old self and say, you could spend more than a minute without using your voice and it would still be there. Mm. I think if, if I knew that, that would have changed a whole lot of things. So that's what I would say to him. I would say to my older self is just keep connecting in with that inner child because he's still there and he still wants to come out. He was just missing for a while. And that's, that's work I've been doing more recently is connecting in with that, that little fella that was lost at eight years old and, and stayed missing for about the next 15 years or 20 years. So that's what I'm saying to my current self too. But that you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Simon. It was so great to have you on today. Do you ever work with women? open to work with anybody so even though mm. i am mindful men I, I do it because i want to be the guy that i never had for other guys but someone who doesn't identify as male wants to come and work with me yeah come and give, look me up on on the interweb we'll have a chat and see what we can do together mm. so again your podcast is called the mindful men podcast so yeah just sharing stories just like this with people all over the world hearing triumphs and challenges and and mm. all in between and we talk about a range of different stuff not just men's mental health disability, alcohol, work, finances, all sorts of things just to help guys to be more mindful about what's going on in their lives. Mm, that sounds fascinating. I know quite a few guys I'd like to send that to for them to tune into. It's fantastic. And if people want to reach out to you, Simon, what is the best way for them to contact you? Are you on Instagram or? Yeah, I'm on Insta, Facebook, LinkedIn, TikTok, all of the, all of the above. But my website funnels all that. So you can just go to www.mindful dash men.com.au and that links to both my therapy clinic but also my social media and the podcast too amazing well i love what you're doing i think you your work looks absolutely fantastic i'd love to get you back on again and check back in and just talk more i'd love to talk more about the values things and yeah. all stuff that's right up my alley thank you so much for your time today and i just wish you the best on your journey it's amazing thanks danny i really enjoyed it mm, thank you bye